Hey everybody, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. I'm here with a special guest all the way from Ontario. That's where you are, right, Derek? That's right, London, yeah. Ontario. <laughs> yeah, so I have on the line with me Derek Ross. He is the Executive Director and General Counsel for Christian Legal Fellowship. Uh, he is also currently Editor-in-Chief of the Christian Legal Journal, a periodical examining the relationship between law and religion. Thanks so much for taking some time to join us for this show. Well, thanks so much for having me with you, Steve. It's great to be with you. Yeah. As I get started, I always do this with my interviewees at the risk of sounding too philosophical. Who is Derek Ross? (laughs) Who is Derek Ross? That's a great question. Well, I am a lawyer. I work with Christian Legal Fellowship, as you mentioned, and I have a privilege uh, here of being part of a great team and ministry that's devoted to helping Christians and others in the study and practice of law who are wanting to connect their work with their faith. I'm also a Christian, of course, and driving philosophy in my life is to aspire to follow Jesus's example. And I believe his his example and his teachings offer us life and truth and answers to the biggest questions and challenges that we face. And I'm also blessed to be a husband and father and I'm a big, big fan of dad jokes. Ah, so yes. that's that's me in a nutshell. All right. Well, thank you for that. So Christian Legal Fellowship, what are you guys about? Can you give our listeners a kind of a flavor of what you do as an organization? For sure. Well, as I just mentioned, CLF is a ministry to law students and lawyers and those in the practice and study of law. But it is also a ministry to serve the church and Canada as a whole, not just in ministering to lawyers, but through lawyers and law students and others who are committed to justice. So we believe that as an association of legal professionals, that we have a role to play in contributing to conversations about what justice requires. And so we advocate for human rights and a more robust understanding about how human rights can be protected, especially in connection with religious communities and religious freedoms. From a Christian perspective, one of our theme Bible verses is Micah 6.8, which tells us what God requires of us, and that is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so those are the three things that we try to do in all of our work, And uh, we've been very fortunate as an organization to have been recognized as a group with unique legal expertise on certain legal and constitutional issues. So we've been granted permission to participate in a number of constitutional and charter cases Mm -hmm. as an intervener, uh, uh, what's called a friend of the court, a third-party group that participates to provide a different perspective on the issues before the court and help the judges understand or gain a better, more nuanced appreciation of some of the broader implications that may be at stake in a specific case. So we've been fortunate to intervene in almost all of the uh, freedom of religion cases that have been heard by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, over the past two decades. And um, 
We've intervened in many cases in lower courts as well. We also have law student chapters at most law schools across the country. So if, if uh, you're a law student who's listening, uh, we would love to connect with you. And, uh, or if you're a pre-law student or someone interested in the study of law, we would love to welcome you to our community as we explore all of these things. Yeah. I have a friend who is studying law right now in BC. So here's a shout out to you, Eric. You might want to consider joining with Christian Legal Fellowship. Now, Absolutely. Now, speaking of freedom of religion, uh, this is something that you guys are heavily involved in. And this is a really hot topic right now with everything that's going on. I live in the Edmonton area, and many people have heard about Grace Life Church, what's going on there, so on and so forth. So as a way to get into the topic of the freedom of religion, would you first tell us a little bit about the Forgotten Freedoms Project? I found that on your website. I'm just very curious, how did that come about and what is the goal of this project? For sure. So the Forgotten Freedoms Project is an academic initiative uh, led by Professor Dwight Newman at the University of Saskatchewan. And that project is is separate from and independent of Christian Legal Fellowship, but CLF and the Forgotten Freedoms Project collaborated in organizing some different initiatives. One of them was an academic workshop uh, that we co-organized last year to bring scholars and academics and law professors from across Canada to discuss the fundamental freedoms that are protected in the charter and specifically to look at those freedoms which so far haven't been given a lot of attention in our case law or in our scholarship and explore and unpack what those freedoms mean. That workshop and the papers that were presented there led to a book, a publication that uh, I co-edited along with Professor Newman and Professor Brian Bird at the University of British Columbia. And that book was published by LexisNexis Canada. It was also published as a collection of papers for the Supreme Court Law Review, which is a law journal. And uh, and again, those papers explore the 10 different fundamental freedoms protected in the charter. And maybe I'll just mention what those freedoms are, mm-hmm. um, because some some folks might not be aware of specifically what is guaranteed in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, our Constitutional Bill of Rights. And specifically, they are freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. And we have a series of videos on our YouTube page as well that was filmed at that workshop, interviewing a number of these scholars. So anyone who is interested in learning more about each of these freedoms, please check out that YouTube page. But we wanted to study these freedoms more closely because of these 10 that I just mentioned, the only ones that have really been the subject of specific or close attention so far in our case law have been freedom of religion and freedom of expression, and to a lesser degree, freedom of association. But even then, only in some very specific labor law type contexts, dealing with the rights of unions, for example. So we have these seven other freedoms that are guaranteed as fundamental in our constitution that have yet to really be unpacked. So that's what the goal of that project was. Right. Now, speaking of these freedoms, these are labeled as fundamental freedoms in the charter. So what is meant by that? What are fundamental freedoms and how do they differ from other freedoms that we have as Canadians? 
No, those are great questions. And, and, and as you say, they are designated as fundamental. That is the term used in the charter itself as the subheading for each of these 10 freedoms that are divided into four subsections. And the short answer is that that's not a question that has really been answered thoroughly in our case law and in our scholarship of what makes these freedoms fundamental. And I think we need to have more energy and attention focused to that. There is a growing recognition, I think, that one of the reasons why these freedoms are fundamental is because they are core to our understanding of what it means to be human. They are fundamental to our sense of identity and dignity and integrity. They all protect and assure our freedom to live according to our core understanding of what is right and good and true. And if we don't have these freedoms, what are we left with? We are left with the opposite of freedom, which is coercion, hmm. being forced to conform to someone else's conceptions of right and wrong, being forced to conform to an identity that is not our own. So in understanding why these freedoms have been elevated, and they've been elevated above all other liberties and freedoms, these are the ones that have been enshrined and entrenched in our charter as fundamental and guaranteed in section two, is to ask the question, if we aren't free to think or speak or believe, what value does anything else in life really have? These are the exercises that are core to our very self-definition. They are what allow us to be autonomous beings who are not enslaved to majoritarian dictates. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is what we've articulated, or at least certainly what I and some of my colleagues have articulated as going to the understanding of why these things are fundamental. The court, the Supreme Court of Canada has looked at this question and, and did so primarily in, in its first decision uh, under Section 2 of the Charter, a case called Big M Drug Mart. Uh, that was a case in the early 80s. And to this day, that was the first case to address freedom of religion. And to this day, it is still the what we call the leading case hmm. on freedom of religion, how uh, freedom of religion is defined. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that these freedoms aren't just fundamental to the individual, so for all the reasons I just mentioned, but they also said, and I think this is also important, that these freedoms are fundamental to society as a whole, because our very democracy depends on these freedoms. We cannot be a free and democratic society if members of society are not free to discern what is good and true and try to push our democracy towards a better understanding and reflection of what is good and true. It almost sounds like a contradiction to say that society is free and democratic, and yet some people are not free to freely believe what they want to believe or express or live out their, what, what it is that they believe. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I was wondering if I could ask you a group of questions and see if you can kind of answer them in one fell swoop, because we're talking about freedom of religion today specifically out of all the fundamental freedoms. So what is freedom of religion 
And what is its connection to the freedom of conscience? Because I understand those two are connected. We don't seem to hear a whole lot about the freedom of conscience. Why is freedom of conscience so important? And again, how does it connect to the freedom of religion? Mm. Well, in terms of how freedom of religion has been defined, uh, again, the, the definition that was first articulated in that case, Big M Drug Mart, that, right. is, still, that is still the leading definition. And, and I'll just quote that. I have that here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court there said that freedom of religion protects the right to entertain such religious beliefs as a person chooses, the right to declare religious beliefs openly and without fear of hindrance or reprisal, and the right to manifest religious belief by worship and practice or by teaching and dissemination. So that is a very broad and robust and I think a very good definition of freedom Mm, of religion. Um, You know, some people will try to articulate freedom of religion as freedom of belief or freedom of worship. And in fact, this definition makes it very clear that Freedom of religion protects more than that. It protects the right to manifest beliefs, to practice beliefs, to teach and disseminate beliefs, to declare them openly. So this isn't just a private and personal protection. This is very much a protection that protects public exercises Mm. and open exercises of religion. Now, of course, there are some limitations to that, and we can unpack that in a minute. But, you know, what the court made very clear in Big M Drug Mart is that we want to avoid what they call a tyranny of the majority. We want to protect citizens from being forced to believe what the government believes or forced to believe what the majority believes. That freedom of religion ensures that there is space for minority groups to live in accordance with their own beliefs, even if they are different from or contrary to the beliefs the majority embraces. So that was the first case. And that case also talked about freedom of conscience. And so going back to your question, Stephen, the court did say that freedom of conscience and religion were related, and they even used the term integrated. So as a result of that, that sort of set a trajectory that almost conflated or subsumed freedom of conscience into freedom of religion. And and as a result of that, there hasn't been a separate discrete theory for freedom of conscience as distinct from uh, freedom of religion, but they are separately listed in the charter. And that is for good reason. If freedom of conscience was identical to freedom of religion, they wouldn't need to be listed separately. That would be seen as redundant, and that would be contrary to what we'd call basic principles of statutory interpretation. Mm. That's a general principle of interpreting laws that we have to presume that the drafters of our constitution were intentional about including every word. Mm -hmm. They don't use redundant or repetitive language. So that's what's starting to be unpacked now in our scholarship, uh, including the Forgotten Freedoms collection that I mentioned earlier was, well, what is freedom of conscience and, and what does it protect? Uh, What has been said in our case law is that uh, there's been some commentary by some judges that freedom of conscience protects both religious and non-religious moral convictions. So that there's a broader spectrum of what's protected, although even freedom of religion is widely understood to protect 
um, you know, thing, atheism and, and non-religious commitments as well. Mm-hmm. But I really like Professor Brian Bird's characterization of freedom of conscience. He explains how it really protects our freedom to make our own moral judgments and live our own lives in accordance with those judgments, because that is essential to our, again, our identity and integrity. Our integrity refers to our ability to live our lives as whole beings, undivided beings. We aren't forced to be one person in one situation and a different person in another situation. We have the freedom to be true to ourselves in all contexts, and that's where we find our identity. So conscience is absolutely crucial to our self-definition. And so Professor Brian Bird has made some great comments in that regard. And what I've unpacked in my own scholarship on this issue is that freedom of conscience can also be understood as our starting point in our search for truth. And I've expressed the view that truth-seeking is actually one of the core purposes that underlies all of the fundamental freedoms. Each of them, in their own way, serve to protect our freedom to pursue truth. They don't entrench a particular conception of truth or endorse a specific truth claim. It's quite the opposite. It's actually trying to prevent the tyranny of the majority's conception of truth Mm -hmm. being imposed. So freedom of thought, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, all of these freedoms in their own way can be seen as allowing space for us to independently seek truth free of state interference in all spheres of life and protect us from being forced to embrace the government or the majority's conception of truth um, and instead pursue our own understanding. Yeah, I'm already thinking of lots of examples. I have some friends who are in the medical profession, and this is a huge issue for them because of their moral convictions and what the sort of the majority culture requires of them. So, for example, friends who are in the OBGYN type of fields, you know, they are required to perform certain procedures that they find morally reprehensible. So this is a case where they are one person in their private life, but when they are in their professional life, they have to be somebody else that they are not. So let's move on here. Uh, On the fundamental freedoms, the charter says... Well, actually, I'm not sure it's just the fundamental freedoms, but the Charter says that our fundamental rights and freedoms can be subject to reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Can you break that down for us? What does that mean? For sure. And and you're right. That does apply to Section 2. It applies to a number of other uh, rights uh, protected in the Charter as well. And, and what that means, basically, is that the Section 2 freedoms and, and the other rights that it refers to are not absolute. Freedom of religion, for example, is not a blank check that allows us to do whatever we want in the name of religion. That there are contexts and situations where the government is justified in limiting or placing limits on certain exercises or activities. And that goes back to Big M Drug Mart as well, where the court said that no one, no one should be forced to act in a way contrary to their beliefs or conscience, subject to such limitations uh, as are necessary. This is the quote: subject to such limitations as are necessary to protect public safety, order, health, or morals, 
or the fundamental rights and freedoms of others. And that makes sense. I mean, we can't have just you know, radical, unbridled liberty, like every law that's passed is going to place certain limits on what we can and can't do. But what the what the charter is saying is that when it comes to these fundamental freedoms, that's different than just, you know, your freedom to engage in certain self-indulgences or self-fulfilling activities. This These freedoms are different in kind, and these can only be limited where the government can demonstrably justify them as appropriate in a free and democratic society. And so what that has led to is a specific test. Uh, We call it the Oaks test that's named after the, the first case that articulated the test that the government must meet to justify a limit on a charter right or freedom. And what the government has to show is first that they have a pressing and substantial purpose, which means that they must have an objective that is important, so important that it justifies overriding or limiting a constitutional protection. And then not only must it be a pressing and substantial purpose, but the means that the government chooses have to be proportionate. So they have to be, the court uses the term, carefully designed and rationally connected and should impair the right in question as little as possible. And then the court gets into the final stage of the test, which is a balancing stage where they say, now let's take the objective that the government is trying to advance and let's weigh the goals of that objective and the effects of that objective with the negative impact that this has on the person whose freedoms are being limited and assess, basically, does the good outweigh the bad in this situation? So what the court actually gets into is a very values-based almost moral philosophy type of Mm. analysis. And that's been subject to a lot of criticism. There's been some criticism that maybe the courts are getting more into more public policy and philosophical and almost political reasoning than strict legal interpretation Mm. and analysis. But that is what the charter has, has facilitated. And so that's where a lot of the, um, the work takes place is weighing the harm of the infringement with the benefit of the government's goals. And that's where certainly our organization and other public interest interveners participate in these cases to be able to speak to what some of these broader implications are. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just listening to this podcast last night on the ancient Canaanites and the practice of child sacrifice. So imagine if you had ancient Canaanites living in Canada today and they're burning their children as a sacrifice to their god Molech, I think the Canadian law would say, no, there is a demonstrably justifiable reason to intervene in that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So no, no right is absolute in that sense. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, along with this idea of the freedom of religion, there is this phrase that's often thrown about, the separation of church and state. Now, as I understand... Separation of church and state is an American political concept, not Canadian. So how is this relationship then understood in the Canadian legal context? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, Separation of church and state is an American concept. We really haven't embraced that concept in our case law, certainly not in the way that the Americans have. Our constitution, for example, specifically contemplates government funding of 
religious denominational schools. So ours is a very different tradition, very different history. But what our case law does recognize is the idea that the government, the state, has a duty of religious neutrality. The government is required to treat religious communities equally, and uh, the case law says it must neither favor nor hinder any one particular religious belief or non-belief above others. So, But it's also been said that the state does not need to be neutral about religion, but rather neutral between religions. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the state is allowed to support religious communities, but it must do so in an even-handed manner. So this is something which has been characterized by George Egerton as religiously positive pluralism. So we're a pluralistic society. Religious communities need to be treated equally, but we also view religion as a good, a positive thing. And that duty of neutrality, that governs how the state treats religious communities, but it does not restrict the freedom of religious communities or religious individuals from participating in the public square. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Um, state neutrality, the Supreme Court has said, it's actually designed to encourage all identities, religious and otherwise, to feel welcome in the public square and in our democratic institutions and to part to welcome people from all faith backgrounds and non-faith backgrounds to participate fully and equally in all aspects of Canadian society. So rather than trying to privatize or marginalize religion or remove it from the public square, our case law takes a very positive and robust approach and says the state's duty is actually to be welcoming of religious voices as well as non-religious voices. That's a nice segue to my next set of questions. So what I see is uh, two kinds of responses to this idea of you know, separation of church and state, uh, which again is an American concept, not Canadian. But some people argue that this religious neutrality means then, you know, you as a Christian, let's say, can't bring your faith to the public discourse. And then on the other hand, you have people who are arguing that the government has no authority over the church at all. For example, uh, some people at Grace Life Church in Edmonton here, or those who are supportive of that church's stance, they would argue in, in that manner. So let's uh, come back to the first first part. I mean, you kind of touched on this already, that the, the state welcomes or is supposed to welcome all religious voices. But when it comes to, say, your position as a lawyer— does your having a religious faith somehow disqualify you from being a lawyer? Because it seems that, you know, it, it makes you sort of have this conflict of interest almost if you are involved in a case that involves Christian institutions or individuals. Well, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, certainly all lawyers, all professionals uh, regulated by their professional bodies, they do have professional obligations and ethical obligations. Mm -hmm. um, and for lawyers, that includes the duty to avoid a conflict of interest. So if there was a specific case involving a specific group or community that I was involved in that would um, 
you know, prevent me from being completely loyal to my own client and advancing their interests, you know, that would be a conflict that, that I would have to deal with. But simply being a person of faith does not in and of itself and should not be seen as in any way detracting from uh, your ability to be impartial, to advance the principles of justice, to contribute to the administration of justice, um, because everybody is, in a sense, religious. And I, I don't mean that in the sense of everyone belonging to a religious community or everyone believing in a deity, but everybody has their own ultimate set of commitments that informs their conception of what is right and wrong, what is good and true. No one is ideologically neutral. Mm-hmm. So it would be arbitrary and, and frankly, it would be discriminatory to say that, quote unquote, non-religious ideologies are welcome, but, quote unquote, religious worldviews are not, um, because there's no such thing as that, that neutrality. We all have our set of ultimate commitments. And our Constitution recognizes this and says everyone must be permitted to contribute to our democracy and be welcomed in the professions and welcome to participate fully in public life. And this thankfully has been recognized by the Canadian Bar Association. Over the last two years, uh, they've passed two resolutions. The Canadian Bar Association is the National Association of, of Lawyers in Canada, and I'm a part of it and was very much involved in these initiatives. And um, the resolution that was passed last year made it very clear that religious lawyers make meaningful contributions to the administration of justice in Canada and that they should not face discrimination in the legal profession or otherwise because of their faith. And that was um, a response in part to Bill 21 in Quebec, Mm -hmm. which currently bans the wearing of religious symbols for certain public servants, including including, uh, certain uh, lawyer roles and lawyers that work for the gov- the provincial government or under a contract with the government under this bill, they cannot wear religious symbols. And um, that is inherently discriminatory because it is trying to, and it does so in the name of uh, neutrality, but that is not neutrality. That is what I would view as an extreme version of secularism, which isn't neutral about religions, but is actually inherently anti-religious and views religion negatively and with suspicion instead of saying everyone should be welcome in the public square. And so that goes back to what has the Supreme Court said about neutrality? They've said that it is not about uh, forcing people to hide their faith or suppress their faith. It's quite the opposite. The very reason the government has this duty is to ensure that no one feels coercion or pressure in the public square. And this is actually designed to promote and enhance multiculturalism and diversity in the public space. So the goal is not to remove religion from the public square. In fact, the court has specifically rejected the idea that there should be a homogenization of identities in the public space. It's in fact to ensure that there is religious diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've heard it put this way. Maybe this is not your usual legal lingo, uh, but in a different world of discourse in philosophy, let's say, not that law and philosophy don't go together, but I've heard some people put it this way, that there is negative secularism, which says that the state should be, like I said earlier, uh, neutral between religions 
Whereas there, on the other hand, there is this kind of positive secularism that basically enforces something that looks like secular humanism. So, for example, you know, Quebec's Bill Twenty One, which mandates the removal of religious symbols from public servants, those kinds of things. Does that sound accurate to you? For sure, you know, and there's different terms that are used to describe these different conceptions of neutrality and secularism. Um, I've also heard the the distinction between open secularism and closed secularism. Some uh, prefer the term of uh, accommodation pluralism versus convergence pluralism. The point is there are there are two different visions of what neutrality requires. And so when people use these terms, they could be talking about two very different things. And so it's important for us to unpack and get to the root of what is the underlying idea that's being advanced here. But certainly as far as the Supreme Court has articulated state neutrality, it is very much a vision that welcomes religious identities in the public square and does not exclude them. Yeah, okay. So um, everything that we've talked about so far, how does that cash out in a case like the Trinity Western University Law School case. I understand you guys have been pretty heavily involved in that as well. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, just you being having a religious faith doesn't disqualify you from being a lawyer. Is that the point of contention, if you will, on this case? Or what what's actually going on here as you see it? That's a great question. And and the issue in Trinity Western was different. I, it's certainly related and relevant to this conversation, but that was a separate issue. That, that case dealt with whether Trinity Western as a law school community could be accredited or approved and have its law degree recognized by the law societies of various provinces, or whether the law societies could effectively refuse to recognize that degree because the law societies had concerns or objections to Trinity Western's admissions policy. And the law societies concluded that they did not and would not accept Trinity Western's degree because they viewed Trinity Western's admissions policy as exclusionary and discriminatory, because in the law society's view, it effectively restricted LGBTQ students and students from other faith communities from attending Trinity Western. Now, there's a whole podcast that we could have about this case and the arguments that were raised and the views that were advanced. I will say this, I think In my respectful view, and ultimately, by the way, the Supreme Court in a decision of seven judges to two uh, decided in favor of the law societies and concluded that it was reasonable that the law societies were justified in refusing to accept a Trinity Western law degree as an approved law degree because of the concerns about the admissions policy. But the court did not say, for example, that um, Trinity Western's beliefs could not be held by lawyers, that uh, lawyers could not be open about their faith. You know, those were not the issues. It really had to do with a very specific set of facts about the approval of an educational degree. But in my respectful view, I participated in the litigation for a number of reasons that I've written about elsewhere and listeners can visit our website to read some more. I do think that the majority's reasons were wrongly decided. I believe that those reasons departed from the principles that we've been talking about, which have advocated for accommodating difference. And I think what the majority did was they shifted from that approach 
and adopted a different, a less robust view of diversity. The decision assumed that, at least in this specific context, diversity and equality requires even a private religious institution to accept members into its community who do not share that community's beliefs and commitments as a precondition to approval of the law degree. Instead of accepting a more robust, and I think the right understanding of diversity, uh, and this is the understanding that the dissenting judges adopted, that diversity and equality is better served by allowing a diversity of communities and allowing freedom within that community for individuals to associate around their shared beliefs, um, but allowing that association to take place and allowing a diversity of groups rather than forcing a certain conception of diversity within each of those groups. Now, again, I think this has to be understood on its own context and its specific facts, but you know, I think that that is where there was a very different vision of diversity, and we see that, see that played out in the differing reasons of the majority versus the dissent. Okay. Um, then let's uh, take a few steps back. Earlier, I mentioned that there are a couple of different sort of reactions to this idea of separation of church and state. And again, I can't emphasize this enough for our uh, listeners that this is an American political concept, not yes. Canadian. Uh, but uh, there, there is sort of the other side who say the government has no authority over, say, the church at all. So again, like I mentioned, some people at Grace Life Church in Edmonton or those who are supportive of that church's stance would argue this way. But to me, it seems like we, we know of cases where the government can legitimately exercise authority over a religious institution when, for example, abuse is taking place, so on and so forth. Mm. So what would be your view on this? Right. So, so far, when we've been talking about neutrality, we've been talking about how neutrality, how it pertains to the relationship of the government as it relates to uh, religious communities participating in the government's institutions. Now we're talking about uh, how does that relate to the government now entering into or participating in religious communities? Right. And there is a sphere, there, there is a certain level of autonomy and separation here where our fundamental freedoms do provide space for religious communities to have the freedom to determine their own practices and exercises as it relates to worship, their own structure of their organizations. So, you know, who is a member, who is not a member, who is qualified to be a pastor, that is all protected as a sphere of autonomy, a sphere of church or religious group autonomy, where our courts have recognized that those are not issues that the court is in a position to dictate, and the court will not involve itself or entangle itself in theological issues or theological disputes unless it's related to some other legal interest or property or civil right that is within the court's jurisdiction. Now, what we're talking about here in the context of COVID and restrictions on gatherings for worship, you know, this is almost at the intersection of what is within the government's legitimate jurisdiction and what the courts have said are generally within a sphere of autonomy for churches. And so we're almost in this overlapping sphere here. And that is why there's such tension, because it does raise the question of when is it appropriate for the government to exercise authority over 
uh, when and where and how a religious institution gathers for worship. On the one hand, there's legitimacy in the government enacting regulations, even regulations which have an impact on the life of a religious community, to protect the health and safety of its citizenry. Uh, on the other hand, though, those restrictions have to be carefully designed, narrowly tailored, uh, specific to a very pressing and substantial purpose. And so what we have here is that debate. And so I think I don't think anyone is actually arguing that the government has no authority to enact regulation to protect the citizenry. Where we're seeing disagreement here, even amongst Christians, is a question of degree. When and where is such regulation appropriate? Uh, what go specific goals and objectives form a legitimate basis for the government to legislate in a way that limits the freedom of religion for religious communities? And specifically, what degree of demonstrable justification, to borrow the term from Section 1, does the government need to show in terms of evidence of the harm or risk to public health in order to justify these limitations? So looking at it this way, I think there's a spectrum. On the one hand, I think almost everyone, or I think everyone would agree that the government would be justified in saying to a church that has, for example, a condemned, physically dilapidated building, you cannot meet here. This is not safe. There's an imminent risk to the health and safety of the public to come in here. This church cannot gather at this building. On the other hand, I think we'd all agree that the government would not be justified in saying during a regular flu season, you cannot meet, no one can meet because you might get the flu or some other remote risk. So there's the spectrum. And of course, the current debate and the current controversy falls somewhere between these two extreme mm. examples. Um, some will argue it falls much closer to one end. Some see it falling closer to the other end. But I will say is this. The government has committed itself under our Constitution to uphold and protect and guarantee the fundamental freedoms of religion and peaceful assembly, subject only to those limits that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And there is nothing wrong with citizens or religious communities asking the government to be held accountable to that standard, which the government has created for itself, and ask the government in court to demonstrate with clear evidence why it is that the specific restrictions that they have chosen on gathering for worship are justified during this time, and also why it is that other perhaps less impairing restrictions would not suffice. And I think that's especially true in cases, and this is the case in some jurisdictions, where governments have allowed other comparable secular activities to continue because that does raise, I think, a very legitimate question about whether the risk that the government is concerned about can be managed differently and perhaps more proportionately balanced mm -hmm. with the very real need that people have to be have to be part of a worshiping community. And so that's what's playing out in this litigation right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're quickly running out of time here. This has been a fantastic conversation, uh, but I want to make sure that I give you a chance to say this piece 
If our listeners want to learn more about the work of CLF, Christian Legal Fellowship, where would you send them? And is there anything that our listeners can do to support you guys? Thanks so much, Stephen. I would encourage listeners uh, who want to learn more about us and our work, you can visit us on our website at www.christianlegalfellowship.org. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter, and you can also sign up for our mailing list um, where we send out updates about the various issues that are happening across the country and our analysis and updates on various legal issues. And especially for those that are considering law or interested in going to law school or are currently in law school or currently practicing law, uh, you can join our membership and you can find out more about us on our website there as well. We are a registered charity, and so donations are very much welcome to support the work that we're doing, and uh, we very much value the support of the Canadian public in, uh, in the work that we do. Great. Thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the show, Derek. It has been a wonderful pleasure speaking with you. It's been great to chat with you, Stephen. Thank you, and thank you for all the work that you do. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. In the meantime, love God, love people. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's podcast. As always, make sure you like and subscribe to the AC Podcast on your preferred streaming platforms. For those of you who are familiar or maybe hearing for the first time, Apologetics Canada will be doing another literary expedition. This time it will be hosted by Steve Kim and myself, Troy. We will be speaking on a topic that has been sparking a lot of controversy and interest within the church. That topic being critical race theory. To be involved, whether listening or actively engaging, please make sure to sign up at apologeticscanada.com today. Spots are filling up really quickly and they are limited. So make sure you secure your spot so that you can be involved. Until then, as always, love God, love people.